You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I was thinking as I was preparing for this episode about a theme that has popped up in many of our shows lately, maybe even all of them. Just within the last month, we have talked about how to successfully establish an IRA, how to get unstuck in your working life, how to make friends, and how to earn your first $100,000. And if you haven't given them a listen yet, I highly recommend it. And with all of these topics that we've covered, an important, a necessary ingredient, maybe even the most important and necessary, has been risk. When we want to make a change, do big things, earn big money, we have to be willing to take a little and sometimes even a lot of risk. And I know from speaking with many of you, that despite the fact that last year seemed at times kind of mundane, we were flexing our risk-taking muscles in a major way. When we took on the role of teacher for our kids, we were taking on a risk. When we moved across the country or moved back in with a parent or had a parent moved with us, when we applied for a new job or asked our boss for a raise, even though economic times were uncertain, And the reason why risks like all of these are such a big deal is because we never know if they're going to work. We never know if they're going to be successful. There is always this doubt that we might fail. But wouldn't it be great if we could approach all of this risk-taking with a better understanding of what's actually required to achieve lasting success or with more faith that we could find a silver lining in the face of failure, no matter how the end result shakes out. I am so happy today that we are going to dive into the ultimate guide to decision-making and risk-taking for anyone who's ever found themselves afraid of making the wrong choice. And we're doing it with one of the most 
well-respected female tech executives in Silicon Valley. Sukinder Singh Cassidy founded three companies, including The Board List, which is an organization dedicated to placing women on corporate boards. She just served as president of StubHub, which sold this year for $4 billion. And she is the author of Choose Possibility. Take risks and thrive even when you fail. So, Kinder, I'm so glad you're here today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I want to talk about your book, but first I want to hear about your career. Tell me a little bit about your journey to leadership in tech. You've spent time at Google, I know, and Amazon and started three businesses. Well, interestingly, my journey in tech started with taking a risk. Um, In hindsight, I think one that worked out fairly well, but I don't give myself all the credit. I think I give a lot of credit to timing, which is one of the big factors when we all choose to take risks. The when makes a big difference. But I grew up in Canada, so I grew up going to an undergraduate business school. I went to Merrill Lynch and Wall Street as an investment banking analyst after that. And I was lucky enough to be able to move to Europe for my job. And so I was living in London and working for a media company post my time in investment banking. And I was about 27 and I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how. Two of my roommates were from California. They were both California girls. And I visited one and fell in love with the Bay Area, the weather, the kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And absent knowing what business to start myself, I quit my job and moved to Silicon Valley in 1997. And that was the start of my journey in tech. And Luckily enough, uh, one of those two friends, one of their parents put me up on their couch while I found a job. It took me about three months. And uh, my first, that was my first job in tech. So I arrived kind of with a broad idea of what I wanted to do, but I can't say it was perfectly planned. But in hindsight, 1997 was a pretty good time to come, you know, bet on the internet. So that's how my career started. And I think you can think of my career through line as I'm somebody who loves to build. I love to build companies. I love building things with great people. I mean, half the fun is the journey of who you get to work with. And then the other half is what you get to work on. And I've done that at basically three of my own companies. And then also at larger companies at pretty critical points in their evolution. So Google, when it was small, Amazon, when it was small, and more recently, StubHub, when it was actually a 15-year-old brand that needed, I think, reinvention to think about what its next chapter of growth might look like. It's amazing. And what's More amazing because you mentioned Google, Amazon, StubHub. We'll talk about the three companies that you started. But you say in your book you made many wrong choices in your Mm -hmm. career, but you learned how to turn those down moments into successes. Listening to you, it doesn't sound like you made any wrong choices at all. So can you elaborate? Oh, of course. Everybody looks at your resume and wants to point to the highlights. And I think that one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I think people presume that risk and reward is very linear, but it's actually not. So a case in point, I told you about arriving in the valley and one would agree that's a macro choice that worked out, right? Because I got here at a good time relative to the rise of the internet and how many company opportunities that would present. But keep in mind, my first job, I arrived at a company where on day two, my boss told me I was scaring the secretaries. By month six, I was miserable because I think he kept giving me menial tasks and I was actually quite frankly even though I was only in my mid-20s, I was used to getting a lot of responsibility and having bosses trust me and give me more, not less. And I found myself thinking, like, maybe this is not the place for me. Maybe, like, I'm not meant to do business development. Maybe I'm not meant to be in Silicon Valley at all. And I almost left. And then I quit my job at six months. And luckily for me, I gravitated towards another startup where I found what I would call values fit, 
where like on day one, I met the founders and I didn't really care at all about the topic of the business. In fact, I thought it was quite boring, but I really resonated with their style, their candor, their transparency, their hustle, and ended up, you know, at that company and it sold to Amazon six months later. So I think that when people talk about bad choices, that's one. It's like anything. There's no choice that's certain. You and I both know this. This is why I say like, look, not every risk works out. But that was the beginning of a journey in Silicon Valley. And so although choice one didn't work out, choice two, three, and four did work out. And then, by the way, I had another big choice that didn't you know, work out. When I left Google, I wanted to move into e-commerce. I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to join a startup again as opposed to something big. And you know, I studied for three years and I kind of made the pivot and ended up being CEO of a startup. I bet, by the way, a big career at Google. I was arguably one of the top executives there gave up a big paycheck, gave up success, gave up a lot of stock, gave up a lot to switch back to entrepreneurship. And within six months, I mean, I was in a battle with the founder. He wanted the company back and we both thought, you know, he wanted to be CEO again and I wanted to not lose my job. And guess what? I lost my job. The board picked him. I mean, it was incredibly painful at the peak of my career. You know, later in my career, I had joyous. I started the first video commerce company. I got it to $20 million and I could not get the economics to work out on a unit economic basis. And I sold for a very small sum. I mean, I could tell you 10 companies right now that have equivalent revenues and are valued at, you know, very, very highly in Silicon Valley right now in video commerce. And mine didn't make it, you know, at least not to the degree I I dreamed. So I've had at least three big failings in my career, probably more if you count all the little ones. How did you take those negatives and turn them into positives? Because, I mean, they sound like the kind of experiences that might make people stick their head under a pillow for six months and live on haagen Well, first of all, if you think I don't stick my head under a pillow and live on haagen think again. I always say to people that, you know, we, we try and tell each other that failures don't matter, but bigger failures hurt. So I gave myself time for recovery. When Polyvore happened, keep in mind, it was my first CEO job. I mean, you know, when you think about pain, like I gave up economics, I bet my ego and my reputation. I mean, it was humiliating, frankly. My husband and I was like, I was miserable. Our kids were preschool. We literally moved away from the area for 60 days and just rented a house and went skiing every day because I couldn't bear the idea of talking to anyone. And I know that sounds like a first class way to hide. And I frankly, I'm happy to say it is like we basically said, like, look, if we can afford to take 60 days without me having a job, like it's December, screw it, let's just disappear. And that's what we did. And, you know, that's what I needed to actually lick my wounds, right? I did not want to talk to anybody. I would cry if I talked to anybody about it. So first of all, I think this idea that there's no recovery time is just total BS. I, I, I agree with you. Eat Haagen-Dazs and, and hide. I don't want to talk to people who can make me feel worse about myself when I already feel terrible. So I always use that strategy, by the way, like I am good with it. But I think this idea of turning negatives into positives, I think, you know, you know how it sounds very cliche when people are like, I turned a negative into a positive. I'm like, my cycle is more like deep depression. Don't want to talk to anybody who makes me feel bad. Remember what life's about, which for me in particular is about family and to some degree spirituality, because I was raised in a pretty religious family. So my parents were always like, look, you know, there's something higher than all of this. So like you can get caught up if you want. But and, you know, I come back to those foundations when things in my life go massively awry And then, like I said, my recovery mode is more about like, then I start to like inch my way up and I start to discover new things. And for me, the excitement of starting to discover new things and what's possible, I go through some period where I'm just ingesting a lot of information that makes me feel hopeful. That's my next phase. 
And then obviously I'm discovering and I'm taking risks to discover, but nothing big, you know, and then I'm studying and then I make a choice. And then the good news for me, and I don't know about you, like I'm all in, like once I make a choice, then I'm spending, like, then I'm distracted. I'm literally distracted for several years. And that is the way we recover from failure. And then at some point we look back and, you know, everybody, everybody else calls it success. And I could stitch the through line all the way back to that original failure, but it's like a sequence. It's just, and the only difference now, Gene, than before is I trust the sequence because once you failed enough, I'm like, you just have to trust in the process. So I think that's how recovery happens. Have a process, play through. If your process is recovery, hide, remember your family, read a book, whatever, get yourself starting to think about whatever it is. I have a process I go through. Um, and I also have support. At some point in my bigger career challenges, I hired an executive coach, somebody I could just literally vent to and cry on the phone with and talk to. And I didn't want to place all of that on my husband. So I have a process. Right. I have a person and I have a process. <laughs> well, I, and what strikes me about what you're saying are a couple of things. First of all, I, I'm a runner. My listeners know I'm a runner. And I was injured last year, so I've sort of been coming back and building back up to five miles and six miles and doing it with some help from some of the coaches on the Peloton app. And what strikes me is that they are always talking about how important those recovery days are and those recovery minutes are, right? You go out, you mm -hmm. think you're going to run a mile and they want me backing off at 30 minutes and I don't want to back off at 30 minutes, but they're yep. like, no, you have to jog mm -hmm. for a minute now. And if you can force yourself to do that, the rest of your race or the rest of your run, whatever you're tackling that day is so much better. So I love this idea that it's okay to recover. But you also write in the book that long-term success comes from tackling numerous choices, not just one choice at mm -hmm. a time, but numerous mm -hmm. choices that are aimed to optimize future possibilities. And it sounds to me like that's what you're describing when you say, well, I'm looking at this and I'm looking at this and I'm doing my research and I'm pulling it's almost like writing a story. Like we take it all in and then we decide what mm -hmm. we're going to spit back out. Is that how it works for you? Yeah, I think, well, I think you're right. So if I were to like try map that process back to what you're saying, I'd say, okay, I have a recovery process for sure. Then I have another risk-taking journey. But before I ever choose, I'm risk-taking what I call in the book for discovery, which is true. Like for me, before I choose, I want to know, I want to be a calculated risk taker. I'm the same, right? I'm still, I'm like everybody else. I'm trying to optimize my possibilities and, and make good choices. So I'm always have a discovery phase in risk taking, which I think a lot of people want to skip over because they want to go back to certainty. Do you know what I mean? Certainty feels really good. And I understand mm -hmm. how for some people, certainty is unnerving. For me, uncertainty is my period of like of discovery. And I like having a discovery period for risk taking. And then to your point, when I take a risk, I think this is what you mean. People think that you take a risk and then you're done. I'm like, mm, you don't, you make a choice. And then guess what? You have another hundred choices to make between that and your next reward. So we're always in this process, right, of trying to optimize the next possibility. But for me, my major chapter is I sort of make choices in three to five year increments. And then once I've made a choice, what I really want to do is be, you know, be in a feedback loop, right, every day, optimizing my impact at work, making new choices, taking little risks, doing everything I can, you know, to play out that big choice I made and give it its best chance of success. That doesn't mean I'll always win, but it means I'm trying to be really, you know, choice making all the way. So I'm a believer in that process. So in risk taking is throughout, it's just about the size of the risk. And it's not how people classically talk about risk. That's the problem. People are like one big choice. I'm one big choice away from success. I'm like, well, actually, you're in a fairly continuous process of risk taking <laughs> and many choices. So that should actually relieve your pressure. But you know, it's also about practice. 
So how would you, if we're thinking we need to build our risk-taking muscles, if we think we Mm -hmm. need to get better at taking risk, and we talk a lot about risk on this show, right? We talk about Mm -hmm. investment risk because women leave, you know, as a group, we leave far too much money sitting on the sidelines in cash. We talk about career risk, like we're talking about today. We talk about longevity risk and the fact that Mm -hmm. we have to be worried that we're going to live a really long time and we need money for that. How do we build our risk-taking muscles? Yeah. So I think there are three things that I try and do to build my risk-taking muscles and I would advocate for everyone. And again, because you're an investing show, you know this very well. You know, if you look at investing, right, it's a portfolio of choices. Would you agree? Like, you know, if you want to pick one stock and create like wealth, it doesn't happen, but you become smarter, right, as an investor, by making a series of choices, a bunch in parallel, and then sequentially, you get liquidity on one choice and you make another choice. So first and foremost, I think you have to think about risk-taking as a portfolio of choices. At any point in time, you're making a portfolio of choices. You're not just making one. If you think you're optimizing for one goal, you're probably optimizing for three, maybe happiness and money and, you know, and becoming a CEO or whatever your career ambition is. So you're probably, you know, optimizing for multiple things. And you have many at that. So I think number one, remember it's a portfolio of choices. It's not one. Number two, take risk early for discovery. I say that a lot. I think that we want to choose before we have choices. We want to choose before we have choices. What does that mean? So let's say you want to make a career change. I know many people are like, I want to make a career change. I want to make a career change. Nothing happens. They get an inbound call one day and they're like, should I take this job? I'm like, okay, well, just step back for a moment. Before you say, should I take this job? I would say, is this new job just about it's triggered for you that you want to make a change. Okay. Well, what about taking another two weeks? And in that two weeks, take little risks to discover, pick up and call a headhunter who called you, ask them what they have, talk to your boss about what new roles are available in your organization. Like go maximize your choices, go take. So I always say there's so much risk taking to be done today. If you just want to discover what's possible, like that's one reason to take risk today. Like, so I'm always like, before you choose, take some risk to find out what your choices are. <laughs> like that's a very that's really example. Really, really good advice. So I'm always like choices before choosing. That's like one way to practice risk taking. The second is risk taking to learn. Most people, you know, think risk taking is only for ambition. If I said to you, hey Jean, or your listeners, take the risk of an hour of your time and listen to this podcast. That's a risk. It's a choice, right? Like we'd say that choice has value or it doesn't have value. But I would say to people, take risks to learn. There's some of the smartest risks we can take. You know, and often when we don't try and say, like, I have to meet this ambition, I have like, then I'd say, you know, I have opportunities to take risks every day. And then, of course, in our daily jobs, to maximize the impact we have at work every day, we have the opportunity to take little risks. So if you want to come to your work life, not just discovery, not just learning, but I mean, impact today, impact today may not be about a career change. It's about the choices you're making today to unlock a little bit more impact at work. Maybe that's telling somebody who, you know, you're having friction with, inviting them to coffee. Maybe it's about being in a meeting and having, you know, something to say and actually just saying it. Maybe it's about asking a question you think everybody else is ignoring. Maybe it's about sending a suggestion to your CHRO because you think the company could be doing more to improve its culture. Those are all choices today that are little risks that the cost is your time or your ego, but the opportunity is impact today. So I'm always like fun reasons to take risk today. There are three. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. 
Think Fast Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression. To keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners! It's Nima Gobeer. I'm the co-host of MindShift. The podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world. How we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking with Sukinder Singh Cassidy, author of "Choose Possibility, Take Risks, and Thrive Even When You Fail." Okay, seven myths of success, or your top three. I'll give you my top three. We talked about one, so let's just recap it: the myth of the single choice. This idea that what stands between one's us and success is one big choice, and when you think it's one big choice, you risk never choosing, right? Because you either think it's epic defeat or glory. When you and I just talked about, like between you and any reward is probably a hundred choices, maybe a thousand. So what's really more important is that you get into motion, any big reward, and just start getting in a feedback loop on what's happening because you'll always have one more at bat. Like you know, so I always say to people, like you can always, you know, take a feedback and a learning and make your next choice. So that's the first one. I think it's pretty important. One that people talk less about is, and I'll uh, put it out there, is the myth of control. So we tend to believe that. If we succeed, it's all about us. If we fail, we must be terrible. And you know, I like you am a, somebody who believes I have agency on my life, right? So of course, if you've been trained to believe like you are empowered and have agency, one of the downsides of that is you believe like I control everything. The reality is, smart risk taking is not just about what we do, but it's about the environments we put ourselves in, the people we're with, whether we're In a headwinds or tailwind situation, as I said, like do you have momentum behind you? Are you joining a division or a company or that's like part of a bigger trend? You know, are you joining a company or a division? Or are you, you know, already in one where like profits are falling fast and like there's a lot of pressure to change something? But with the environments we are in, ultimately, you know, determine whether or not what our likelihood of success is. So we tend to think if we plan and overly plan and overly plan, we can extract all the risk of a situation and control it ourselves. And I would say being a smart risk taker is about being in a scenario where we're always agile in our response. We should feel empowered in our response to something, but know that it's always a confluence of who we are, how we're executing, and the environment in which we're in, and being attuned to both. So I think the myth of control is one we all subscribe to, and I think it's about our control is not in predicting everything perfectly. That's virtually impossible, and all the planning in the world will not fix that. You can kind of take read. Be smart, you know. Like keep reading the horizons while you're executing, and feel confident in your ability to respond. That's the kind of empowerment I think that we get when we let go of this idea of, of control. So I think that's a, another big one. 
And the third one is the one we chatted about, this myth of risk and reward. People think it's linear. And quite frankly, it's linear over ma- if it's mapped out over a lifetime and maybe a series mm-hmm. of choices. Yes, if you mapped out my career, people would say, Kinder, that's pretty linear. And I'm like, okay, it looks linear on top. But if I will tell you, but if I were to tell you below, what it really looks like is risk and return is not always correlated. I've taken small risks with big returns. I've taken big risks with no return. No matter what the world tells you, like I've taken some of the biggest risks and not had the return, right, in the short term. But again, I tried to have an impact. Whether I failed or succeeded, I have my results and I have feedback. And then I played that into my next choice. Over the long haul, you'll find a relationship between risk and reward. Linearly, singularly, a single risk does not lead to a single reward. Which I think is a really, really good markets and investing lesson too. I mean, clearly based Mm -hmm. on your story, you've taken some significant financial risks. Leaving Google, Mm -hmm. that was a big financial risk. I've done it too, not at that scale, Mm -hmm. but, you know, Mm -hmm. leaving a job that paid twice as much to get a job that I wanted, that I hoped would Mm -hmm. pay off in the long run, but certainly was not going to pay off in the short term. Mm -hmm. Women, as we were saying, we're, we're less comfortable with financial risk. We sit on the sidelines. We have way too much cash on our balance sheets rather than investing money that we should be investing. How do we get mm-hmm. comfortable with the idea of financial risk? How did you get comfortable with it? Oh, look, that's a great question. So first of all, you know, financial risk for everyone is like a very essential topic because we all are here supporting. I mean, I, you know, I'm a big breadwinner in my family. You're probably a big breadwinner in yours. I mean, so we're all just not responsible only for ourselves. But as we get older, the idea of financial risk is we're responsible for our families too. So look, I am a big believer in risk diversification when it comes to taking financial risk. And so what I mean by that is, you know, if I'm taking a big financial risk, I either want to know that I have savings and, you know, that's my in my hedge, or I have a spouse who's taking a different kind of risk, right? So if I'm taking career risk, my husband's not. If I'm taking, right, so like everybody, I actually play risk diversification. But keep in mind, I feel like one of the biggest things about risk diversification, and you know this because you're an investor, is that you have to use that risk diversification to make multiple levels of bets. So risk diversification is not just sitting on all your cash. My portfolio, my own financial portfolio is always a mix of safe bets, medium bets, alternative assets, right? And I am looking at the payout of all of those things. And like everyone, I am managing, you know, and even what I'm doing for my day job and how much financial wealth or not that's going to create. So I'm always managing a portfolio of financial risk and return, but it allows me to A, be very ambitious, Like if I want to bet on a startup, I can. And on the other side of it, I know exactly what proportion of my assets are in, you know, are in bonds or what have you. By the way, the other piece of this for women, as you know, is not actively diversifying and building a portfolio. It's also just about financial literacy. Like we, like not knowing about where your money is, is not an option, you know, at all. But I would say, I think that financial risk is to be taken smartly to be diversified, certainly. But one of the things I love about risk diversification is it lets me play some of my most glorious bets along with some of my safest bets. Like if all I'm doing is sitting on cash, that's like a zero bet. (laughs) So I'd rather be able to have strata of bets knowing there are different probabilities of return. And I think factoring your career into the equation is a really smart way to look at it. In the times when my career is a startup, then I'm gonna be safer in my portfolio. Absolutely. Right. And in the times when you're earning, but you know, all of this, of course, and I think when it comes to financial risk taking, it's really important. Like, of course you need to be prudent. And for both of us, I'm sure saving and compounding my money early was something I did, but I think either way, 
your career is definitely one of your biggest wealth generators. So I've always looked at my career in the basket of my financial risk and return portfolio, always. By the way, I've also looked at the reverse. Am I making enough money for my time for what I, what I believe I'm worth? Absolutely. And we talk about that all the time on this show. Mm-hmm. I want to just look at a couple of other really sort of tough risk decision-making questions. One of which is if you've just truly made a blunder or maybe even a series of blunders, how do you get back on track? How do you trust yourself? Yeah. Well, I think one of the first ways you trust yourself, which I know is scary for people, is you have to like take the time to diagnose that risk and that failure and why it happens. So like, you know, it's hard to just when you fail, right, to just be like, hey, do I take another risk? I think you have to be as calculated and looking at your failure and figuring, you know, in, in the book, I think, you know, I kind of offer a framework for how do you make a calculated choice? And for me, when something failed, I want to look back and say, what was the failing point? Was it that I was in an environment that was not conducive to my strengths and values? What were the headwinds and tailwinds of the situation that I didn't foresee that ended up playing out? Who are the people I was with? I mean, the people factors are a really big one, right? And then number four, like, what were my goals, ambitions? Were they, you know, off track to, like, was what I was doing not aligned with what I wanted to achieve? So I always want to diagnose my failure. Well, that's really painful for people. It's only in the diagnosis you can say, okay, well, which of my calculations, you know, didn't go the way I expected, right? So I think that when I'm trying to sort of make a next choice, if if it's a one blunder, by the way, I you know want to look, diagnose, and then I want to figure out what is my risk appetite after that. On a series of blunders, let's say you've made five choices that haven't worked. By the way, there is a deeper diagnosis, and yes, a reevaluation of what your risk tolerance is. Because as I say to people, it would be easy to write a book on risk that just says, "Hey, guess what? Just take more risk." Right? But people want careers that go up and to the right. They don't want careers that go sideways. Right? We all aspire to have like so. If you've made a series of blunders and you're you know five choices in, and now you've like not wasted a year or two years, but you've wasted five or seven years of your career and you're wondering how to get on track. Yes. It may be that if you've done five startups in a row and they haven't worked out, that may be an ideal time to look at and say like, okay, why did these choices not work? Is this the time for me to go to a bigger company? Maybe it is. Maybe that is the right calculated risk to take in that moment. So just because you are a risk taker doesn't mean you're always looking for the most risky option. Does that make sense? Being a risk taker is about being calculated in your choices. So no one's saying you have to like be the outlier on every decision. It's about when do you have room to take large risks? When do you have room to take small risks? But I think it's the calculus when you've made a series of blunders is different than what you've made one, because I think what you're really trying to do is figure out in your pattern recognition, what's maybe going wrong with your framework repeatedly. Okay. So now think about a scenario where you are dreading making a decision. Maybe you've been putting Mm -hmm. off making a decision. Maybe it's because the decision seems like you're choosing between two bad choices. How do you get yourself to stop putting it off, to stop procrastinating and to actually decide? Yeah, I think there are a few different things you can do there. But first of all, just one point, if you're like sitting between two bad decisions before you do anything else, you've got to identify like two or three more choices. Because when people are like, each decision is bad. I'm like, okay, before you force yourself to decide, I want you to force yourself to take a little bit of risk and try and brainstorm two or three more solutions. But let's just presume that you're in a bad situation and you have each one is like slightly better, but not great. And you have no more choices. You need to make a decision. I would say to people, like there are a few things. Who you surround yourself with is really key. You need to go find a professional priest, what I call somebody who knows you 
um, and is unbiased and is sort of has what you think of as really kind of good and sound judgment and a perspective you don't have. And I would just say, maybe it's not your spouse (laughs) and go like find somebody you can confess all your feelings and failures to, but also kind of get a really good perspective. So I'd say assemble your professional priests and they may not be your best friend or your, or your husband. Number two, I would say like identify the minimum viable choice you could make today. And if you're not willing to make the maximum viable choice, which is choosing one of those things, can you fractionalize them and choose a minimum that sort of incrementalizes you there? When you say to people, can you make a minimum viable choice as opposed to the whole choice? People often can act. I think that's a, I think that's the second one. And then third one, and I think this is my fail safe for everyone. Like, remember, like once you make a choice, you still have the opportunity for feedback and to come back. Let's say you make a choice and it's not great. Most things Jeff Bezos calls two-way doors. Like if, if you can identify, and I would say this to people, identify all the things that would happen if you make a choice that fails. And if you can return to your current state or something similar and you're not any worse off, then you have flexibility to make that choice. And so the third thing is just like identify all the choices that would happen if you fail. If all of them are two-way doors that lead to more options, you're good. So you choose between two you don't like, but if you go through one and you have three more choices on the other side, that's better than where you are today. So mapping what happens if you fail on one of those choices and how many more choices you have, is it better or worse than today, is a great way to get into action. Minimum viable choice is my new favorite thing. It's my new favorite thing. I'm stealing that and I'm making it my own. If you have one piece of advice, last question for all of our listeners who may consider themselves risk averse, what would it be? I think I would come back to this myth of the single choice. I'd say, let go of this idea that it's one mighty choice between you and success. I guarantee you that if you make a series of minimum viable choices, you will start moving in the direction you want. So the most important thing is to get yourself in motion on anything it is that you're thinking about. If you want to become an investor, then, you know, go figure out how to open your account. You know, if you are in it, you know, if you are at hundred percent cash to your point, like, you know, go invest 1% in your first stock. I mean, whatever it might be, it's about getting into motion far more than it is about overweighting the first choice because you have many more shots. Sukinder Singh Cassidy, you're the MVP, not MVC of this <laughs> podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where can we find more of you? Well, you can always find me on uh, LinkedIn is where I hang out most. Twitter is next most. And then I hide on Instagram, as I say to people, it's just more one more place to post. So uh, you won't find me there. You'll only find me like liking other people's pictures. And then choose possibility the website. You can take a risk quiz, which is a pretty fun thing to do if you want to know what your natural style might be. Choose possibility came out earlier this month and you can find it on any channels where you like to buy your own books. Amazing. Thank you so much for this. This was a fun conversation for me. Thank you so much for having me. Fun for me too. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And her money's Catherine Tuggle is with me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine, good to see you. Hey, Jean, how are you? I'm pretty jazzed from that conversation. First of all, I love people who speak in prescriptions. And she was very prescriptive. Do this, do this, do this when you need to make a decision. Do this, do this, do this when you feel like you are in between a rock and a hard place. Like, that's my kind of woman. I love that, too. I think we all need that in a book. We need that in a friend. We need that in a podcast. We need that in a boss. I had a boss who was extremely prescriptive. And at first, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And then after about three months, I felt like I just 
would consult her on absolutely everything. And I still consult her like as a life guru. So Mm -hmm. it's so helpful. Yeah, my mother is like that. She takes in all the information. She does her research, like Sukinder was saying. And then she thinks about it. And then she's very much, you know, do this ABC. And I think it'll work out for you. And usually it works out. At little things and big things, it's uh, I'm very lucky that way. Amazing. Yeah, she was great. And I love this idea. I know I hooked into it, but this minimum viable choice is extremely helpful because if we're thinking, it gets in the feedback loop that we stymie ourselves with. You know, when we can't decide, when we can't decide... Should I open a 529 for my kids? Should I put money away for college for my kids? Which one should I open? If we can get ourselves to just, today, I'm choosing to go to savingforcollege.com and to research, if I did open a 529, which would be the right one for me living in my state? You know, I made a choice, I did a thing, and that thing is going to lead me to the next thing. And that's how... It works. Yeah, it's such a great point. I also loved what she said about not feeling like you have one choice, that it's never this either or proposition. I actually think that a lot of very successful people, like our listeners, I think successful people tend to live in a world of extremes a lot of the time, like a Mm -hmm. black and white world, because I think that you're good under pressure. You know how to climb the ladder at work. You have faced adversity and overcome it. And I think a lot of times very successful people are guilty of feeling like they have a single choice or a black and white world that they live in. And that's not always the case. There's so much gray area. There's so many tiny choices you can make. There's so many tiny first steps you can take, like your 529 example. Just start by doing your research and seeing what's out there. Yep. Absolutely. Along those lines, let's try to help some of our listeners take some steps. I know we've got mailbag questions. Yeah. Our first question comes to us from Cass. She writes, Hi, Jean. Thank you for your podcast. My mom works in wealth management and has taught me a lot about personal finance. That being said, I don't think I always understood everything she was trying to teach me until I started listening to your podcast. My mom and I are very thankful for the work you do to help make financial concepts digestible and easier to understand. I'm 26 years old. I make $140,000 a year, and I have a net worth of $152,000. I just want to pause and say. Yeah. Can we just pause? (laughs) Wow. Okay. Big wow. Wow. Well, I wish I had like a little horn. I'd be like, dur, dur, dur. That's, the <laughs> high, that's the high earning horn. Good for you. <laughs> okay. I recently moved companies and got a significant salary increase. So making this much money is very new to me. I have $84,000 in cash, $20,000 set aside for emergency, $63,000 for a future down payment, and $1,000 for fun money. I have 47,000 in various 401ks where I continue to invest 2,000 a month to max out my contribution for 2021. And I have 21,000 in an index fund where I invest $1,000 a month. I also resell a lot of my clothes and run a small business. Right now, I'm very fortunate to be living at home with my parents while trying to decide my next move. 
I'm having a hard time doing this without knowing my job's policy and going back to the office and just not knowing what to expect with the impending Delta variant. As a result, I want to optimize this time I have not paying rent. My question is, I have around $3,000 a month left over in cash after expenses and investments. I have decision paralysis on what to do with this amount. I want to continue putting money in my down payment fund, potentially want to go back to school to get an MBA in the next five years, and I want to save money for a small future wedding, which is two to three years away. Should my small business pick up, I'd like to invest some money in that as well. I love to see my cash accounts build up, but I'm worried I'm foregoing market gains by not opening a second index fund. What's your advice? Is cash king or am I missing out on the market by not investing more of this $3,000? Thank you so much. I am grateful for your help and advice. Wow. I mean, you get a wow on salary, but you just get a wow on how you are approaching your life, Cass. I think a lot of our listeners right now are just thinking, boy, oh boy, when I was 26 years old, I did not have my act together like this. And I got to tell you, I am absolutely one of them. As I look at your question, here's what I think about your future goals. The question about what to do with your cash, this 3000 to 3500 and the answer to your question has everything to do with what that money is for. For. And although you don't know exactly what that money is for, all of the things on your list kind of have the same time frame, right? Your down payment for your house, that could happen in the next three to five years, if not sooner. You're potentially going back to school to get an MBA in the next five years. You're saving money for a small future wedding, three years. Invest some money in your small business if it should pick up a few years. And so I think that because you're already maxing out your 401k and putting some money into your index fund, continuing to build up your cash for these short to medium term goals is probably a really good move, despite the fact that you're not going to earn a lot of money on this money. So I would do two things. I would open a separate account and I would just call it short to medium term goals, or wedding slash MBA slash small business fund. And I would put the money automatically into that account every single month, every single time it floats to the bottom of your savings account. If you want to strive for a little bit of additional yield, you can look for a CD, you can look for an investment where you lock it up for a year, two years, knowing that you'll get a little bit of extra yield, but you know the money will be there if you need it. And that's what I would do until I have additional clarity on these goals, because what all of them have in common is that you want the money to be there for you when you're ready to use it. You're doing fine on the amount that you are putting away for your future. You are above and beyond the amount that we tell people to put away. So give yourself a little bit of leeway to achieve these other goals. And my only other piece of advice is that I don't think $1,000 is enough in your fun money stash. I actually think that you should have more in your fun money stash and maybe you should plan a vacation or something that comes around for you 
in the next year or the next year and a half so that you don't let all of this good work and these good goals burn yourself out. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah, that's a great point for the fun money stash. She also doesn't specify how much of her income is discretionary right now, but I'm so impressed that she is setting aside that $3,000 and is really taking advantage of not having rent to pay. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And by the way, if your parents are listening, please tell them what a good job they did because clearly they raised you knowing exactly what's what. Absolutely. So amazing. Our next question today is from Dreaming or Delusional. She writes, Hi, Jean. I wanted to get your opinion on buying a condo as a first home and whether it's something I could actually afford. I currently live in a smaller college town in Illinois where the cost of living is really cheap. I rent a house that I love for $1,000 a month plus all utilities. However, despite that I love my house and I love living alone, I don't want to stay here. I came here for my ex-husband and we divorced a few years ago. I feel ready to make a decision for myself and I'm wanting to move to Chicago next year when my lease ends. It would be a short, fairly easy move and I could likely, hopefully, keep my current job. I make $48,000 a year and recently paid off my student loans and credit cards, so the only other debt I have is a car loan with about $10,000 left. My required payment is $200 a month, but I'm paying an extra $100 every month to try and get it down quicker. I'm tired of renting. I really don't want a roommate, and a condo in Chicago seems like it could be a good investment even if I don't stay there forever. I only have about $5,000 in savings right now, and though I have an aggressive savings plan for this year, I doubt on my salary I'll be able to come up with more than about another $10,000 for a down payment. But then there are the closing costs, etc., and I don't want to completely drain my bank account. I know the logical thing would probably be to rent for a year or so and then try again, but I've been looking into some down payment assistance programs and thinking maybe it could be doable but I also feel like maybe this is just an emotional desire to accomplish something and have something to call my own after all I've been through these last few years. Jean, I remember you mentioning you bought a house after your divorce, so I feel like you'll understand where I'm coming from. I also don't even know if $48,000 a year is reasonable to live on in Chicago. What do you think? Where should I even begin? I feel crazy and have constantly conflicting feelings of, I could totally do this, and I am never going to be able to do this. Any advice is greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you guys do. I love the podcast. So dreaming or delusional, I don't think that you are delusional. I think that these things are all within the realm of possibility, but probably not on $48,000 a year. Now, that said, look, I totally get the wanting to buy your own house after you got divorced. There's something about coming out of this phase of life and wanting, at least for me, to know that I owned a place where I was not going to have to move again when it wasn't really my choice, that I wasn't going to be that I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for here, but I wanted to be on firmer ground and owning rather than renting felt to me like it satisfied that need. So I totally get that. On $48,000 a year, I think it's going to be pretty tough for you to buy a place that you're going to 
like that'll give you the space that you need in the city of Chicago. I actually did a little bit of Zillow surfing to see what's out there. And there are some places available, you know, in the $250,000 range, $350,000 range, where you could get two bedrooms. And at today's mortgage rates, you probably could afford the monthly payment. But with the closing costs and the down payment and all of those things, you're going to need a little bit more in savings in order to make that happen. What I would tell you is that now is a really, really good time to be looking for a job. And you didn't say what you do in this town of Illinois, and you didn't really indicate how much you love this job or whether or not you're willing to give it up. But I'd start looking for a job in Chicago. Why don't you start to see, because typically where the cost of living is higher, the salaries are higher. So take a look at your resume, get it into shape, see what sort of opportunities are out there. As Sukinder was saying, just looking for a job doesn't mean you have to take that job. Just doing your resume and putting it out there is making a small decision. It's not making a big decision about moving tomorrow or six months from now. You can sleuth. You can do your fact finding. You can do some reporting. You can go out and you can look at houses to buy and you can see what it actually would cost you to buy the type of place that you might actually like to live and how much of a down payment based on these programs you'll truly need in order to afford it rather than guessing. And I think all of that information would so nicely tie up the loose ends that you're feeling about what you want for your next stage of life. So rather than thinking that you have to buy or not buy, that you're making this bilateral choice because you aren't, let's make some of those smaller choices along the way and let them lead us down the path to figuring out what the right thing is for you to do. I love that, Jean. And anecdotally, I have two good friends in Chicago who just landed jobs paying them twice as much as what they were making. So maybe you love this job, which is amazing, but don't sell yourself short. It's a great market right now. And um, I think you could easily make a lot more money that would help you further your life goals. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, guys, for writing us. And if you have questions or comments, just send them to us at mailbag at hermoney.com. And in today's Thrive Millennials and the Great Wealth Transfer, it is coming whether you're ready or not. What is it exactly? Well, if you were born after 1980, you are set to become five times richer in the next decade than you are right now. Over the next decade, millennials are set to inherit a whopping $68 trillion from their baby boomer parents and relatives. Millennials will also become the richest generation in history when parents transfer over that wealth. But what will millennials do with all of this money and what should they do with it? You've got options. And this week at hermoney.com, we break down how to manage the money from an inheritance well, make the most of the money entrusted to you, and set yourself up for future success. Number one, stay calm and get help. The first thing you should do when you receive an inheritance, or by the way, any windfall, is just put it in savings. That's right. Stowing your dough in a safe place until you figure out what to do with it is a crucial first step in managing any newfound wealth. 
Once the cash is securely tucked away, get in touch with a financial advisor ASAP for advice and for insight about what to do next. And if you don't have a financial advisor and you want to connect with one, check out Her Money's partnership with WealthRamp on the hermoney.com homepage. It is totally free for you to reach out and see who you might connect with and you make the first call. Number two, keep budgeting. Many people underestimate how much money they'll actually need to live comfortably for the rest of their lives. We often talk about the retirement savings guidelines from our sponsor, Fidelity, but the rule of thumb is that you should save at least one times your salary by age 30, three times by 40, six times by 50, eight times by 60, and 10 times by age 67 or whenever you retire. So, Before you announce your good fortune and quit your day job, take a long look at what this inheritance really means for your budget in the long term. I mean, maybe it means that you can retire a few years earlier or upgrade to a larger home, but that first step is that you continue to budget your earnings and keep track of your spending. Keeping a close eye on your financial habits will help you adjust your standard of living as you need to so that you can enjoy a comfortable life without ever worrying about running out of cash. Number three, pay the tax man. Before you tell all your friends how much money you're inheriting, remember to take taxes into account. As of 2021, you'll only pay federal estate taxes if you inherit an estate worth more than $11.7 million, which means, by the way, that most of us have absolutely nothing to worry about. But keep in mind, six states do have an inheritance tax, and each has its own laws on who's exempt, who has to pay, and how much they owe. And finally, don't be afraid to treat yourself there is a good chance that gaining an inheritance will also mean losing a loved one, which means the day you receive that check will not likely be a joyous one. First, we make sure that money is secure, as I said. Then, whenever you're feeling up to it, do a little something nice for yourself. Set aside a reasonable amount. Go on the vacation that you have wanted to take for years. Invest in your passions or your hobby or a special piece of jewelry that will inspire you to think about that person every time you wear it. Because anyone who leaves you a portion of what they spend their lives working for loved you very, very much and wants you to be happy. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you so much to Sir Kinder Singh Cassidy for sharing her wisdom and insight into decision-making and risk-taking. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.